pastors here. If you are new or, or recently have come here um, and walked into a sermon series on Job, um, yeah, hold on, right? Um, uh, but uh, um, what, a, what a blessing uh, God's scripture is and, uh, and how, how wonderful it has been. Um, let's pray, and I'm going to pray using some of the words that Monica just read to us from 1 Peter. Blessed are you, God, our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've, to, to, to call you our Father um, is, uh, is something more awesome, more humbling, or incomprehensible uh, for, for us to to grass. Lord, you're, it is only because of your, your great mercy that you have caused us to be born again to a living hope. Um, and Lord, we rejoice in that, but we know that now, for a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials. Lord, use those trials to, to test our faith, to purify our faith, so that at Christ's coming, it may bring glory and honor and praise to you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We are in the book of Job. Um, it's uh, in your pew Bibles. It's page 417. If uh, The other uh, trick is if you go halfway through your Bible, you'll end up in Psalms, and it's the book before that. Uh, so, uh, but we're in Job chapter 1, and in uh, Pastor Michael's uh, prayer this morning, he, he mentioned uh, Joseph. And Joseph, uh, through uh, injustice, was taken by his brothers, and he was thrown into a pit. They were going to kill him, but uh, uh, one of the brothers uh, uh, said, hey, why don't we make some money out of this, and sold him into slavery. I know there are older brothers that sometimes think about doing that to younger brothers. <laughs> Um, but uh, he was sold into slavery, and he, was, and he was brought into a man named Potiphar's house. And then he was unjustly accused by his master's wife, and he was thrown into prison. And in prison, he was even betrayed by one of his fellow prisoners. Um, and then when he, uh, and, but then he was elevated to a position where he was basically second in command of Egypt uh, under Pharaoh. And, uh, and, and was used mightily to save God's people. And we, we hear of his story, but sometimes we don't think about my, what it must have been for, for him when he was suffering, for things that he did not earn. But here's the deal, countless years, infinite years before Joseph was born, before his brothers got the thought to throw him into a pit and sell him. Before the, the Ishmaelites that, that bought him started their, their trip, before Potiphar's wife ever met Joseph, uh, before the prison was built, before any one of the pharaohs came to be, God had ordained that trial for Joseph. And he knew Joseph and what, who he was and, and, and what he could withstand with his help. 
He had ordained his suffering, and he had ordained the outcome. So last week, we did a broad overview, a long overview of the entire book of Job. We're going to slow down a bit and just go into the first 12 verses of Job today, and we're going to see that just as God was sovereign in Joseph's suffering, he is sovereign in Job's suffering, and we can infer that he is sovereign in our suffering, and we can look into some of the uh, implications of that sovereignty. We talked about how sovereignty, it means that that God is Lord over all, that he has complete control, that he knows this. His sovereignty is is unlimited. He knows uh, what is going on in our suffering. He ordains our suffering. He has complete power over it. And a word we're going to define for today's study a little bit more is integrity. And we'll, we'll see that uh, in integrity, what most of us would think of it as sort of an ethical structure, this idea that we, that we live according to an ethical code. And, th- and that's a good uh, definition of that. We would talk uh, about a person who is honest in all her dealings, we would say is a woman of integrity. And another, um, another meaning we might find in the word of integrity, and I know we've got lots of engineers uh, in the audience, would be a structural idea of integrity, of soundness, of the, the quality or condition of, of being undivided, of, of completeness. In most of our English translations, we don't see the word integrity in the book of Job in, uh, in, until chapter 2, verses 3 and 9. But actually, uh, right in verse 1, as, as we get into this, we're going to see the word blameless. And it's the same word in Hebrew, this, this idea of, of, being, uh, of having integrity, of, of being sound, whole, uh, upright. Uh, we're we're going to read and, and hear about how Job is a man of integrity, a man of integrity before God's eyes, a, a man of integrity in the, in the eyes of the world, and in the way he worships God. And we're going to see some troubling or, or, or some things that will, will cause us uh, some trouble as we consider how God, sovereign and all good, allows this man of integrity to suffer. And not even that ordains that suffering. And I believe that the verses we're going to read today, study today, uh, show that suffering of the righteous proves God's sovereignty, and it proves the sufferer's integrity. See this? We're going to first look uh, at Job's integrity, again, through God's eyes, the world's eyes, and in the way he worships, and then we're going to look at God's sovereignty, and his sovereignty not just over Job and his suffering, but over the courts of heaven, over Satan, the the adversary, And, and, and we're going to see how God uses uh, or shows his, his sovereignty in ordaining Job's suffering. So starting with this in, in chapter 1, again, page 417 in your pew Bibles, uh, let me read the first five verses. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. 
And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would arise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. The author of the book of Job wants us to know right off the bat that that Job is a man of integrity. He is, in God's eyes, blameless. Again, the same word that's later translated as integrity. He's blameless and upright. He is complete and straight. He is a man of integrity. We see that he is devout in his fear of God and that he lived a moral life, that he turned away from evil. And throughout the book, we will hear not just Satan, but his friends, Job's friends, challenge that integrity say that it's not so, but we are going to see right here and then a little bit later in our passage that even God himself says that Job is a man of integrity. In the eyes of the one who really matters, Job's integrity is present, is true. But Job also has integrity, uh, strength, completeness, uh, honor in front of the eyes or in the eyes of God the world. He has great wealth. He has great possessions. He has a great family. If we read into those verses a little bit more, we can see that Job's sons even had their own homes and the means to hold feasts for themselves and their, and their family. And we can assume that it's saying that the, the days of the feast being over, that these were multi-day feasts. So they were well-to-do. He was considered in the eyes of, of men, to be the greatest of the, of the people of the East. And then we will see later on uh, in, in the eyes of the world in, in chapter 29, as we continue this series, that Job had integrity in, in many of the ways that we would speak of a person of integrity. In chapter 29, we see a, a great list of, of this, how he delivered the poor and the fatherless, how he, he blessed the faint of heart, how he brought joy to the hearts of widows, how he, he ministered to the, the blind and to the lame, provided for the needy, and provided justice even to strangers, that he fought against the unrighteous in, in, in their counsel, and that he encouraged the faint-hearted and those who mourned. People might say that life was good for Job, but that Job was good to have in their lives. And Job also has, we see in in verse 5, integrity in the way he worships. He he worships systematically, but he worships in his heart, and he he worships in in ways that we might not think of of worshiping. He not only repents for his uh, sins, but he, he offers sacrifices for the secret sins of his children. Notice he's not saying that he's sacrificing because of things that he sees, sinful activity that he sees in his children's heart, but on the possibility that they may have cursed God in their hearts. And so God has set the stage in Scripture in this first five verses of the book of Job, the scene that happens on earth. He's brought up a man named Job who's a person of integrity, who is righteous, upright, straight, complete, whole in the eyes of God, in the eyes of man, and in his worship. And God has a plan for Job. And we know, uh, right, the, the spoiler here, 
He has a plan for Job that most of us wouldn't think of. Most of us wouldn't think that the way that we would, that we would move forward, what we would bring into a man's life who is just blameless, right? Up, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. We wouldn't think to bring suffering into his life. But that's exactly what God does. And so in the next act, which is set in, in the courts of heaven, we read this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the, fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in, in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to his, your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. I picture this scene like a big courtroom or, or maybe uh, like an epic movie, the, the, the Lord of the Rings, right? The council uh, chambers where, where people come in and, and God is on, uh, on the throne. But something that's different than this in, in one of those scenes is that everybody's not seated at an equal place. Everyone doesn't have the same standing. When the sons of God come before the, the Almighty, right, the Ancient of Days on His throne, we read in Isaiah 6 that they are so overwhelmed with awe, awe that, that the seraphim, right, the, the heavenly beings come in and cover their eyes to, to hide themselves from God's glory, and they cover their, their feet as a sign of, of modesty. We can, we can picture people just on their faces, or the, the, on their faces before God. This is not a meeting of equals, or a, a council, of, or a round table. This is the court of God. People come and tremble before Him. And if God's sovereignty extends over the heavenly beings, it also extends over Satan and, and, and the adversary who comes in. He comes in at God's bidding to present himself to God. God doesn't go to present himself to Satan. We're told that no matter, or we, we can take by inference, that no matter how cunning, no matter how crafty, even how powerful that this adversary is, that he is not an equal, he's not a rival to God, he's not some sort of opposing force, but he is subject to God. God is sovereign over him. Now, Satan may be deceived. He may think that he is some kind of anti-God, but he is not. He is subject to God's sovereignty. He is not able to challenge it, not credibly, at least. So, God shows his sovereignty again by being the first one to ask the question. You know, the sovereign asks the question of, of the subject. He says, where have you been? And it's not because God doesn't know the answer. Right? We, we, we've got the same sort of questions in Genesis. When, when God asks, asks the man, where are you? 
It's not because God couldn't find Adam in some sort of game of hide-and-seek. He, he's asking for the, for the benefit of the person he's asking and for the benefit for the people who are witnessing that question and for the benefit of us when we read that question. Because when, he, when he talks to, to Elijah in, in an earlier sermon series in the, in the cave and says, where are you? He's not, again, asking, or why are you here? He's not asking what he's there for. He knows, but he's asking for the benefit of, of another audience. And so when he asks Satan this, we hear Satan answer from walking to and fro on the earth. And it ought to remind us right, of another passage in, in Scripture, right? When, when Christ says, be watchful, be sober-minded, for your adversary, the devil, it prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The adversary has been wandering around, prowling the, the earth, looking for someone to, to devour. And it appears that he does not yet have somebody in his sights as a target. Matter of fact, if you were to think of Job, he might say, well, I'm not going there. That's a hard target. I'm going to look for someone a little bit easier. So God sets up the challenge and says, have you considered my servant Job? It's shocking to me that he would. It's probably shocking to, to many of you that God would choose his servant Job. Think about the implications of God doing that. The adversary responds, though, by challenging him. He does this first by claiming that God doesn't know what he's talking about. He's challenging God's sovereignty. And he does that by challenging Job's integrity. He asserts that, God's Job, or that Job's fear of God is transactional, not out of his heart. He says it's dependent on three things. That God has protected Job and his family. He has blessed the work of Job's hands. And that Job's wealth is increasing because of that. And then he makes the challenge that Job's integrity will prove to be false if God will remove that hedge of protection and strike what Job has. He claims that Job will curse God to his face. And before we go out on this, it is an interesting, and I think an important thing to see is, is again, uh, in, the, in the Hebrew, the word used here for cursed because this, this might strike some of you as, as strange, but when we read in verse 10 that God has blessed uh, the work of, God, of, of his hands, of Job's hands, that is the same word that's used here for curse to your face. It's the same word that's used earlier about Job's children may have cursed God in their own hearts. Now, there's a Hebrew word for curse that's used throughout the Old Testament, but occasionally the same word that means blessing almost everywhere else, Barak, uh, is used for curse. And, the, and what makes a Barak, a blessing, a curse to God is the state of one's heart. We see this in verse 5 when, it, when, when we see, see that it may be that they cursed God in their hearts. And so, we, we, we read earlier, um, we, we referenced Isaiah chapter 29, uh, verse 13. It says, because these people draw near to me 
with, with their, their hearts. They, they bless me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So this idea that when our hearts are not in the right place, what we may say with our mouths, that blessing can become a curse. Satan's already said, uh, or is essentially saying, that though God thinks that Job is blessed, or is, is, uh, is blameless and upright, that he fears God, that he turns away from evil, that God is mistaken, that this is all false praise, and that if these things that make him say those words are, are taken away from him, the, these possessions, this family are taken away from him, that he will curse God because he already secretly curses God in his heart. And so God calls Satan's bluff. And at first read, it almost seems like, like God's just taking Job like a bunch of poker chips and pushing him in and saying, okay, you think you've got a good hand, I think I've got a good hand, I'm all in. He hands Job, his righteous servant, over to Satan to suffer. And if we have any weaknesses in our theology, if we have any doubts about God's sovereignty, his, the true, complete, ultimately, ultimate sovereignty of, of the Lord Almighty, those are going to be exposed as we think about what this means for God to hand over Job for suffering. You might ask, how could a perfectly good and merciful God allow that kind of suffering? Was he tricked into it by the adversary? Did Satan have some sort of power over him to compel him to hand Job over to him? How could he throw Job into such a high-stakes game as if he were just this stack of chips? But if we truly believe in God's true and complete sovereignty, we know that there was no gamble at all because God is the one who has no uncertainty. He knows what is going on. This is not a game of poker because God never gambles. He never takes risks. He knows all the uncertainties that we, that we see. It's just as Joseph, uh, as, as with Joseph in his trials, uh, God was sovereign. God knew Job. God knew the contest and the rules under which this contest would be held, and God knew the outcome. God knows Job. He doesn't have questions about Job's integrity. He doesn't have doubts as to whether Job's devotion is true. He doesn't have doubts about the condition of Job's heart. He doesn't have concern about how Job is going to respond to suffering. God knows Job fully and completely. He knows and has ordained each one of his days before one of them came to be. He knows the depths of his heart, his strengths, his weaknesses, his fears, his needs, and his desires. And this is a terribly hard teaching to hear. God not only selected Job for suffering, God created Job to suffer. God created Job to suffer. And that's hard. Because if God created Job to suffer the way that Job suffered, 
God created us to suffer the way we suffer. Before Job's wealth grew, God ordained it would be lost. Before Job became the greatest person in the East, God ordained that he would be struck down into the ashes. Before Job's children were born, he ordained how they would die. Before Job's flesh was formed, he ordained the sores that would be inflicted upon it. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? We can perhaps understand how the adversary is deceived into thinking that he is one, that he has set a trap for Job and for God, that he will win in, but the opposite is true. <laughs> Satan's challenge doesn't surprise God, the sovereign king of the universe who ordains suffering of Job before time began, who ordained this entire contest, he has ordained the time, the place, the players for the battle, and the conditions, the rules under which it will be held. The game is rigged. There is no risk. God knows the outcome because he has ordained the contest and the conditions. He knows what the outcome will be because he ordained that also. He is not wondering what will happen. Job will suffer mightily. It will look at times as if the adversary is winning or has won, but in the end, God's purposes will prevail, and Job's suffering will prove God's sovereignty and Job's integrity. So just as when he sent Joseph into slavery, or Bora against Sisera, when he sent Gideon's hundreds against thousands, David against Goliath, Daniel into the lion's den, Esther into the king's chamber, God places Job not as a wager, but as an instrument or even a champion. He has sent him into a contest that he has ordained, for which he set the rules, and for which he knows the outcome that Job's suffering will prove God's sovereignty and Job's integrity. As one commentator writes, Job is God's boast. We're to boast in the Lord. God boasts in Job. Have you considered my servant Job? When we grasp that, we might change our question from why does a sovereign and good God hand his righteous servant over to, to Satan to suffer? We might change that to why does Satan accept this offer? I mean, Satan knows who God is. Satan probably knows that better than we do. Why does he willingly participate in a rigged game? And the answer is he is deceived. In our men's Bible study on, uh, uh, this Wednesday, Rich uh, Planchet brought up a great parallel I, I would have missed completely. It, it, the, it, we just finished a sermon series a little while ago on James. And, and we hear that a, a person who is a hearer of the word, not a doer only, is like a, a man who looks into his mirror, into a, at his natural image in a mirror, 
because he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets who he was. And I believe that's true about Satan. Satan is deceived just like, like we are often deceived by him. And he looks at himself. He knows that he is not equal to God. He walks away and forgets and thinks that he has a chance. But as we will see in this coming series, the adversary's defeat was already assured before the contest even began. Before one of Satan's days came to be, God had ordained the outcome of this. Before Job's first ancestor, Adam, was formed out of the dust, God had ordained that Job's suffering would prove God's sovereignty and Job's integrity. And by inference, again, we can see that our suffering, our righteous suffering, will prove God's sovereignty and our integrity also. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this? We know that we also are called to live with integrity before God. Beloved, Scripture says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad in his glory to be revealed. We are called to live lives of integrity, even and especially in times of suffering, of fiery trials, to the glory of his name. Yet we might think, how do we follow Job's example when he was blameless and upright, and surely we are not? Yet in Philippians 2, we read that we are called to exactly that, to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Praise God that his call for us to live with integrity is not by our own power, but by the power of his grace through his son, Jesus Christ. So three ways in which we can live with integrity in suffering are by blessing God, both with our words and with our hearts. By serving God with gratitude, not transactionally, and by having confidence that God is sovereign in our suffering. Psalm 103 repeats this phrase over and over. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. John Piper responds to this verse by saying that to bless the Lord is to speak well of His greatness and goodness and really mean it from the depths of your soul. Because blessing God with the mouth without the soul would be hypocrisy. The difference between blessing and cursing God is the condition of our heart. It's not just the nature of our words. It's what we truly believe. To be sure, sometimes one will follow the other. I'll confess that when Martha and I learned that her cancer had returned, my heart was reluctant to bless God. And so I repeated over and over, she can testify to this, 
God, your, your plans are perfect. Your timing is perfect. And I knew it in my mind. I know that that's true. I was preparing this sermon for Job at the time. Um, but I had a hard time convincing my heart. But my heart is catching up to my words. And every day, I'm drawing near and near to God. I hope, as I see the suffering of so many of you, that you are able to do the same through God's grace, that your heart can catch up to your words. His plans are perfect. His timing is perfect. His goodness is perfect. His provision is perfect. And I'm having a hard time wrestling with this one I have through my life. His kindness, not just His goodness, His kindness is perfect. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And as our mouths and our hearts begin to sing out in blessing to the sovereign God, we learn to worship Him in gratitude and not transaction, in joy instead of what He has given us or taken away. Some people say it's easier to worship God in times of, of, of great blessing, of, uh, of great provision than it is in times of want. That it's easier to do so in times of health instead of illness, in times of ease rather than in suffering. But King David disagreed. In Psalm 4, a psalm written when he was in great distress, he speaks of those who are unable to see God's greatness when everything is going their way. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. It's not that we shouldn't be joyful in times where, where things are, are going well, are good. David continues to sing in Psalm 9, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. James writes, is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. But the mark of a person who worships God in joy rather than conditionally or transactionally is the one who worships God in good times and bad, in plenty and want, not because of circumstances and what we have, but because of who God is. And then we can have confidence, that third thing, that God is sovereign in our suffering. We can do that, we can have that confidence because that sovereignty is not affected by our circumstances. On the contrary, God's in His sovereignty has complete control and authority over our circumstances. We can therefore have confidence that when we suffer, that God is sovereign in our suffering because just as, Job, as God knew Job and his, his suffering, the conditions of the contest and the outcome, God knows each of us he has ordained the suffering that we are going through, and He has ordained the outcome. There is a dangerous lie in Christian circles today that Christianity, that our faith is all about making us happy by changing our circumstances. There's a lie that if we will just turn to Jesus, 
that our suffering will pass, our hardships will cease, that our sicknesses will be healed, that the road will become wide and easy. That is a lie. In fact, if you want to follow Jesus, he says the exact opposite. He says, if you want an easy life, you best not follow me. That there is a wide gate, that there is an easy way, and it leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. This is the gate that leads to life, to eternal life, is narrow, that the way is hard, and those who find it are few. But it is that narrow gate we must find. It is that hard way we must walk. The easy way and the wide gate are where we all start, following our own desires, rebelling against the God who created us to love and be in relationship with Him. And He is the God who desires us. But we have turned away in the consequences of that, or that things may seem pretty easy sometimes. We may be through that wide gate, that easy way, but we are actually on our way towards death and destruction, and there is nothing we can do of ourselves to get us off that path. But God, my but God for David, but God, in his mercy, sent his son. He ordained not just suffering, but salvation. He sent his son not to save us in the world from our suffering, but to save us from the world through his suffering. That if we would repent, if we would turn away from our rebellion, our way, our easy road, our, our wide gate, and enter by his narrow gate, by putting our faith and trust in him and his sacrifice, we might find rest for our souls, even when the way is hard. So the God who ordains suffering for Job to prove his sovereignty and Job's uh, integrity also ordained Jesus' suffering to prove God's integrity, to prove God's sovereignty, and to prove God, God the Son's integrity, so that we would be able to put our trust in Him, to trust that what He says is true, to put our hope in Him and our faith in Him. And so while the greatest person in all the East was unable to endure suffering without losing hope, falling into despair and sinning, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, endured the cross, it despised the shame. It is seated at the right hand of God, and it said to those who followed him, he said to those who followed him, not only in this world you will have tribulation, but he also said, take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you have faith in the God who has overcome this world? God promises through his scriptures that because of God's sovereignty, because of Christ's suffering, you may draw near to his throne receive grace, to find mercy in time of need. Let's pray.
God, your teachings are hard. Who can accept them? But you have the words of life, and where else shall we go but to you? But this way is hard, sometimes very hard. Sometimes it feels as if we are going through the very valley of the shadow of death. And yet you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Lord, for those of us who have put our trust in you, may we not try to fall back onto our old ways and, and endure suffering with a stiff upper lip and our own strength, our own endurance. But may we fall into your arms. May we trust the only one worthy of that trust. May we trust in your love, your teachings, your sacrifice, your salvation. Lord, carry us through these, these sufferings that do not seem to us to be momentary and light afflictions, knowing that you have ordained the outcome and that you will be glorified through them. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Please, I